If you have ever struggled with body dysmorphia, if you have dieted, if you have really despised the body that you're in, this is the episode for you. Today I am chatting with Tigria Gardenia. Tigria is really incredible. She is just a fascinating human being who literally ran away with the circus. She has a background that is so multifaceted. She is Cuban-American and lives in a community setting in Italy. She shares her story about starting dieting when she was just eight years old, about her body image, about learning that she actually has body dysmorphia, and also how she changed her mindset to be that of being strong and healthy holistically instead of defining herself by her body. If you want to know more, this is a great episode. It is a really, really juicy one. I cannot wait for you to dive on in. Let's get to it. Okay, Tigria, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. I'm actually super excited about this conversation. It's like one of those conversations that you feel like you'll never be able to have. Then the day you feel like you can have it, you're just so proud and excited about it. Yeah, absolutely. I know you have an amazing, you have an absolutely amazing story. I know, I know a tiny little bit of it so far. Um, But before we sort of dive into the good stuff, why don't you just take a moment and introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about you and who you are and where you are. All right. So, ooh, wow, where I am also. <laughs> um, so I am a nature-inspired leadership mentor. Um, I have a kind of specialization and a special love and affinity for plants. So um, sometimes I'm, I'm called the world ambassador for plant intelligence. Um, and that all sort of stems from the fact that I live in Northern Italy, in one of the largest spiritual eco communities in the world. It's called Domenher. And it's a very unusual place. We have underground temples and I live in a shared community, one of our several shared community houses, which are called Nucleos. And here I fell in love with kind of nature and specifically with plants. So there's so many different aspects. I'm originally from the United States. I'm Cuban American and um, I've been living in Europe now for about the last 12 years, actually. I can't believe. And, you know, my background is super varied. I have a degree in music engineering and electrical engineering. I've worked in high tech. I actually uh, ran away with the circus. That's how I came to Europe because I was on a tour with Cirque du Soleil. And um, so I've done a lot of different things and I'm also a spiritual teacher. I teach um, sacred geometry and Kabbalah. That's amazing. You are like one of the most interesting people. (laughs) You know, you don't even realize it. Like sometimes I write the first time I remember the first time after a long time I had written up my bio and I, I wrote it up and then I left it and then I came back to it later. And I swear to God, I thought somebody had edited it and I looked at it and I was like, what the hell are they talking and I was just like, wait a minute, I did that. Oh, I did that. Oh, shit. I, this is me. <laughs> what are we talking about? You don't even realize it. You, you just go with the flow of life. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> okay. So I want to get into your story because it is, you have a really interesting story. Obviously, I don't think you live that kind of life and have a boring story. Um, <laughs> but we want to really specifically, of course, hear about your sort of your self-love journey and your journey of sort of coming to terms with your body um, and with food and all of that. So why don't you just sort of start at the beginning? Tell us where your specific challenges began. 
Wow. Birth? No. Um, actually, <laughs> actually I, can, I can tell you this much. I can tell you that um, when I, I would say that the, the single most place where I became conscious of it, I actually remember this. So when I became, I became conscious of it when I was eight years old and my mother took me to my first Weight Watchers meeting. And so I remember getting on the scale and I remember that my, I don't ever remember what I weighed, but I knew it was upwards of, um, in this case, pounds, you know, a hundred pounds, hundred and something, probably not that much over because I was eight. Yeah. But I remember that the goal weight was 89 pounds. That was what I was supposed to be weighing. And I remember thinking to myself, I'll never get there. Like, how could I get to there? And it was interesting because I hadn't, I mean, I had always been the chubby kid. I had always been overweight. My brothers, my brothers who are older than I am called me Shamu, uh, which was like the name of a, a famous whale in, um, in the local sequarium type thing. And so I, I had never been thought of as thin. I didn't have that body type. Um, but I hadn't really realized, and my mother in one aspect, I have to give her a little, a lot of credit because she, she did the best she could. And I, I do admire her and I've had conversations, subsequent conversations with her as I grew as an adult, because in her mind, she saw her daughter going towards a path that was going to cause her heartache, um, from the perspective of, you know, life is anything. I was a very active child. I did, I danced for, for like nine years. So it wasn't like I was heavy because I was sitting around watching television. Hence why she decided not to just say, I'm going to put you on a diet because it wouldn't work. We, we didn't drink soda in my house. We, we, I was overweight from orange juice and healthy dinners. So my mom didn't know what to do. And so she thought, well, at least Weight Watchers at the time, I can't speak to it now, was all about showing you how to proportion your food and how to balance your food. So her idea was, this was how she was learning about her own um, weight and such. So what a great way for teaching her daughter. She never thought that at eight years old, maybe it's not a conversation you can easily have, <laughs> or maybe it would, it would cause other types of issues when you have two older brothers that are already making fun of you because you're quote unquote fat and you're a ballet dancer who's overweight. Um, but, but yeah, so I think it, you could say that it all started there. Eight years old. That is, I, I think I was 11 and I thought that was young, but eight, I mean, at eight yeah. years old, you're, you don't even have the, the mental capacities to understand really. I mean, it, no. it's no wonder that you remember it because that I would imagine would be pretty traumatic. Like it was. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like I said, I got really lucky. Like when I, I don't know if it's a mindset thing now, but when I became conscious of it, I did feel grateful that the women there, mostly women, there were some men, but they were, they were funny and they didn't talk about food. I've subsequently had been in other programs and other situations over the years. And some of people get really angry or controlling or whatever. My memories are of heavy women laughing and making comments. And yes, they talked about it from the perspective of, of course, controlling portion size and stuff like that. But at least they were, I can remember happy memories. Like I don't, I remember, yeah, there was probably some tears and there was probably some, there was emotions. Probably I didn't understand them enough. So luckily my mother framed it in a way that was about learning. It was about getting to know yourself. 
getting to know your body, you know, making sure all these other types of things. So that's why I said, I know she did her best in that, but yeah, 89, that number still sticks in my head and, and the like little rewards that they give you. And I remember my little book that you get and you get your little like stamps inside of them. And it's, it's kind of like the equivalent of like Alcoholics Anonymous with their like star program. It's just like, what? 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 Am I a little too young for this? <laughs> so. yeah. yeah. So, so there you are at eight years old, having this experience that you're way too young to be having with your mother who, like you said, she was doing her best, what she thought was the best thing. So what happened after that? What did that do to your, you know, your body image, how you saw yourself, how you related to food? Like, how did that sort of follow you as you got older? Yeah, um, it followed me in always feeling heavy. It's, it's been interesting, like when I tell people, so to give you kind of, I'm gonna forward, fast forward a little bit and then I'll go back just to give a reference. So um, my quote unquote weight issues from a really externally looking place, let's say it in that way, proceeded to continue on until my late 20s. In my late 20s is when I was able to find a way to eat, and I'll, I'll probably get there in the story a little bit, that ended up creating a weight that is what, what people from the outside would look at and say, oh, you're thin, you know, you're, you're, you're healthy, you're thin. So from that age of eight up until my mid-20s, literally, like I think I was like 24, Five to 27 was where I got things under control. For me, food was, was an issue. It was an issue because I'm a Taurus. I love food. I still love food. I dream of food. When I became uh, an adult, like I started cooking for my house in my teens because my mother and I made a deal. I cook, you clean because I was a better cook than she was. <laughs> and, and, and it was great. Actually, it worked out really well. So I would already wake up thinking about the meal I was going to prepare, or I might start preparing things the night before. I had my very first Betty Crocker cookbook when I was like, I think I must have been like 11 or 10. And I used that cookbook all the way through um, until my late you know, teens, because it had a lot of really cool recipes in it and fun stuff. So so there was this subsequent, there was this love of food. Like I said, I was told by the doctor to stop drinking orange juice because I drank too much. So there was no soda in my house, not because my mother wouldn't buy it. She would buy it for guests and it would mold. We didn't have those types of problems. I had problems that I just loved all kinds of food. So all of this sort of resulted in the fact that I looked at my body and I just assumed that it was overweight. I, and I assumed that it was way bigger. I didn't learn that I had body dysmorphia until I was in almost my 30s. But um, I, I just kept looking at myself in the mirror going, you're heavy. Like you're too heavy for what you're supposed to be. I, I was on the softball team, which means I was fat because I should have been like thinner. I, like I said, danced ballet, which everybody is supposed to be thin. And I was nowhere near being thin. I was tall. I had super frizzy hair and I had really bad acne down to my neckline. So I went, I went to a dermatologist for the first time, probably when I was about 12, like to give you an idea of how bad my acne was at the time. So it's like, I had like the, the triumphant of everything. I was tall, frizzy hair, bad acne, heavy weight. I was like, Jesus Christ, I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life. <laughs> so it, it manifested itself in always looking at everything as if I was heavy, like everything, because I was just bigger than everybody else. Nobody had explained to me that the fact that I was also taller meant that of course, by nature, I would be bigger. That conversation never came in. 
my, my mother is a person who she's a little bit shorter than I am. And actually my mother has big breasts. I don't. So I didn't have like the breast thing to sort of hide weight. Mm-hmm. And that made me feel even more fat because almost like your body looks like, you know, your body looks disproportionate. It was proportionate from the perspective that I was completely like a little bit big. I wasn't round in that aspect, but the way it felt from the internal was I was just big, big. I was big boned. I was big. And it manifested in me always thinking about things like reduction. Like how do I, how do I control my food? I couldn't cut certain foods out because yeah, I do have a sweet tooth and I could cut out a little bit of things, but there was only so much I could cut out. I had to just reduce. Um, And then I would like do all these exercise type stuff and it didn't do any good. So I, I just kept always the, the food, the weight issue was just always on my mind. That's kind of how it manifested to me. It manifested as if you're always big. Mm-hmm. And when I described that period of my life up until about my late twenties, I just described myself as heavy. That's the only word that ever comes to my mind. Yeah. Heavy. What was happening inside your head at, like during that, like with the judgment criticism, what was the internal dialogue that went with that? The internal dialogue was embarrassment, a mm. lot of embarrassment, a lot of hiding from perspective. So it's really funny. I, I have a, a friend of mine who is somebody that I refound years later, but who knew, who was kind of like my first little boyfriend when I was in elementary school. Mm-hmm. And it's funny. We went, I, I lived in South Florida. It's super hot, super hot all year round. And he remembers, I went to a private school at that time. He remembers that I always wore a sweatshirt. Because the the uniform, which was your kind of traditional uniform with the skirt that had kind of the jumper top, um, I would take the jumper top off because I felt like a cow in the the jumper top. And I would throw on a sweatshirt. And he's like, oh, yeah, I always think of you as a sweatshirt. Nobody ever thought that I was boiling inside of this. But also, to me, sweat became, oh, if you're sweating, you're probably losing weight. So this is good. Right. Um, And the internal dialogue was hide. And being in South Florida, also we went to the beach a lot. So I always wore t-shirts um, that were long. I never went into the ocean without a t-shirt. And my, you know, so I was always around that. And my best friends, like, you know, the little best girlfriends that you have, which was very small amount of them, because to be honest, I also was teased a lot for being tall. A lot of nicknames constantly because I was tall, because I was heavier, because of all these types of things. So that did not help at all. And that was the internal dialogue there was of shame, of sadness, of feeling really alone, and of looking at yourself, but not knowing what to do. That was, I think, the most difficult part was like, I remember would watch, you know, weight loss shows or read books or whatever I could get my hands on. And I remember thinking, none of this will work for me because my, I do eat healthy. Like I do exercise. I do move. And then and it was interesting because that followed me all the way through college. When I got into college, um, I, I started hanging out with a group of people at my um, end of my high school years and the beginning of my college years that were dedicated to the gym. And so I was actually going to the gym, doing my best as I could do. But my body type, and nobody ever explained that some body types don't reach like ripped abs without a ridiculous amount of work. Yeah. And Nobody explains to you that that six pack or the, the really being um, shredded, like they say, or having the muscles show is a body type. 
and that if you naturally have kind of a little bit more fatty skin, you are going to have that sort of more voluptuous look. And because again, I didn't have the big breast, it was never explained to me voluptuous or any of these positive sort of words. It was just said, you're chubby, you're fat, you're bigger. Like these are the words, the internal dialogue was something is wrong because those words are always associated with the wrong. And I would go to the gym. I remember going like multiple times a week when I was in college trying to do everything that they told me to do. And I was like, why am I not getting smaller? I was, I would pack my lunch with me. I don't even know today here where I live in Italy, it's very common to have three meals a day, right? You do breakfast and they do kind of this sweet breakfast, which is torture to me. Then they do lunch and then they do dinner. And it's like decent meals each time. I don't actually remember a time in my entire life when I've eaten more than one meal a day. I, even in elementary school, I remember having my lunch box then, but from the time I kind of went into middle school, high school, I remember I would skip lunch Hmm. and one meal a day has been my MO as my control issue. I never realized that it was a control issue, but it's like my day, the practice of control without ever putting any kind of thought process to it. Right. Right. Yeah. Wow. What a realization to have. So you said that this all sort of started to change in your mid twenties, right? You're 25, 26. And that's when your sort of your body started to change and you sort of started really working through this. So what did that process look like then? Yeah. So um, at one point I hit what was my highest weight. I was um, in a relationship I had from the outside, what looked like the perfect life. I was working in high tech Um, I had moved across the country. They had moved me across the country. So that validation of like, you're intelligent enough, you're good enough. Luckily, none of this ever crossed into my schoolwork or my kind of work thing. It, it, but it did cross over into my experience with friends. So I always had a very, very small, limited amount of friends. And I never talked about these types of subjects. I was, you know, the goofy one, you know, the typical things that we do when we're heavier. Uh, at one point I was in a relationship and I, I was the heaviest I had ever been. And yet I was still with a man who absolutely loved me and adored me, but I couldn't even like, I think I would hide in bed with with the covers over me. And, um, I just didn't really want him to see me. I felt so horrible and I felt completely out of control. I had no idea how to control it. And I discovered a book called the carbohydrate addicts diet. This is way pre like Atkins craze or other types of stuff. But it, this book has like a little test to see if you're a carbohydrate addict. And the, the diet really is, consists of um, the idea of the way that our body processes sugars and insulin and insulin release and stuff like that. And it really resonated with me. And what I loved about this book was that it talked not about a diet, but about a lifestyle change, mm-hmm. about the fact that when you have this type of body, your body reacts chemically in certain ways and therefore it is not about control but about learning the cues and this is why you never feel satisfied this is why you you would eat until you bloat and because I just again I would I would love food so much that I would eat and eat and eat and I would continuously um, do it in this way and especially because I had gone down to kind of a meal a day but that meal was huge (laughs) right and so this helped me put a, a, a kind of like I don't want to say a control in a bad way, but more like an understanding, a biological understanding even of certain things. And I, back then we had these listservs and I joined a listserv with people, international people, 
Um, most of them were from the United States, but some were from abroad who were all on this diet together, on this journey together. And that was what, where things really started to change, to start to change. Like I felt finally I had something that was working, that was bringing me down from that big weight that I had in. And at that point I started to make big changes in my life. Like my relationship sort of ended and I went in another direction and my work changed and I started to kind of feel, I want to say again, in control, but in the sense of like, I was guiding the path rather than being guided. And that was amazing. It didn't deal though with the body image issues. And that was really a realization. Like I didn't, I didn't understand that they were two separate things at that time. I felt that they were connected. So here I was getting smaller and smaller to the point where I, I have some pictures that I look at myself and I'm going, oh my God, I was really small. Um, I went through a period where I hit probably the lowest conscious weight that I had ever had as an adult. And yet I still bodily felt terrible and was still hiding, was still doing all these types of things that we do, wearing really baggy clothes. Um, I remember the first time I went and bought a pair of like jeans that weren't, they weren't exactly skinny jeans, but they were somewhat tight fitting, but with a tight fitting shirt. Cause I had always wore tight fitting pants with really huge shirts. Yeah. Um, and this is when I decided to go to therapy. I actually went into therapy because of um, a combination of those issues and issues relating to kind of like just lifestyle change and stuff. And um, when my therapist said to me, he's like, you know, you have body dysmorphia. And I just looked at him and said, excuse me, like, <laughs> what? He's like, you have body dysmorphia. He's like, uh, you know, and he helped me understand that I was looking at certain parts of my body. He was like, can you look at a photograph, not a mirror? And when I would look at a photograph, which to this day is the same, that's where I see my real weight. In a picture, I can see what my body looks like. In a mirror, I see completely a different thing. And that has been like a super interesting realization of like how when I look at my, when I really need to see how my body is doing, it is the picture that allows me to be more objective. And, and then the other part was then from that perspective of starting to really learn, okay, well, wait a minute, who do I really want to be? Is this something I want to control me? By this point, I was starting also my spiritual path. And that really helped me to start to look at life from a completely different perspective rather than minute things like my job, my relationship, how much money I have, what my body looks like, what my hair looks like. I, I had at that time fantastic hair. I had super long hair. I was starting to go into acting in addition to my, as my hobby. So I was putting myself out there, but yet I was hiding. It was the weirdest double standard thing. So like I was going for frumpy things, or I think about, you know, when you talk about what's going on in your head, I think about all the years of my life that I have avoided things like sexy. I have avoided things like I don't think I've ever owned lingerie that I've ever bought because I can't handle that. Mm -hmm. um, I go more towards cute. I go more towards fun. I go more towards pretty, but I won't go towards sexy. I don't by dresses. I don't think I've worn a dress in ages. Um, and all these types of things that follow you along because in the body dysmorphia, you fixate on certain parts of your body that you're like, okay, so I can't wear anything that's fitting on the stomach. I can't wear anything that'll show my thighs. I can't wear um, anything that accentuates. And then you have this double thing that happens, which is, I don't know about others, but how it manifests in me is a double thing. One, you want to wear stuff that flatters you, but you don't want it to flatter you too much, especially if you're single, 
I don't know about other people, but this is how it manifests in me. And I'm going to reveal one of those really embarrassing, mm -hmm. but yet true things that you want to look good in your clothing, but you don't want to look so good because you believe that if you get into a relationship and the person sees you naked, they'll be disappointed. Yeah. That took a long time to process. Mm -hmm. Like, like literally I realized that I was, I wasn't wearing, you know, really nice bras or I wasn't wearing anything. Like I have a, I had a, I had a friend for a few years who was all big about, you know, wearing the whole kind of fitted teddies or like she would wear the push-up bras and she would wear the slim fitter things. And I can never wear any of those because I was too embarrassed that if anybody recognized that that's what I was doing, they would recognize that my body was actually flabby and shaped funny in some ways or whatever the heck it is yeah um, that was really harsh to understand that that's the reason why i didn't want anybody to look at me sexy with clothes on because i felt like they wouldn't look at me sexy without clothes on. right right so if you never sort of did the sexy with clothes on you couldn't disappoint anybody and nobody nobody exactly. nobody could go what is the what is this what what am i seeing exactly. yeah exactly that one and yeah. that was another piece so as i started to get into my spirituality and i started to look at my life as a more complete thing some of that shifted into different places because then now you come into this acceptance phase of your life where you start looking and you're like okay well i will never have that kind of ripped look unless i choose and i can choose to dedicate myself to fitness. Right. Okay. And I took um, in the, as a Kabbalist, the way that I studied Kabbalah, we had these like year long journeys that we would do based on, you know, the way we would move through the tree of life. And I remember choosing at one point, I've chosen twice in two different scenarios. The first one was, okay, do I want that fitness, that, that perfect body to be an active part of my quest in life? and reaching and my relationship with food to be based on that. Mm -hmm. And I remember getting to the end of that year saying, absolutely not. Like I love food and I want to be able to enjoy because food is conversation, food is preparation, food is relationship. I later discovered also it's the relationship with the plant world that I have today, yeah. but at the same food was all about all these different things. And while I want to eat, I'm very healthy in what I eat. I don't want it to be restricted to a minimal because my body doesn't process things that allow me to be zero fat or whatever, 10% body fat in any other way other than an extreme reduction and an extreme focus on that. Right. And so I want to live that life. And so I have to work on my body image and I have to work on my acceptance of myself. And I have to look at being healthy rather than worrying about whether there's a ripple in my stomach or whether there's some cellulite on my butt you know i have to think of myself as what are the indicators that come out that make me healthy relating to my skin relating to my hair relating to my overall body and if that means a bigger size because that's what's healthier so be it right and then the second piece came when i was on tour with cirque du soleil which you can just imagine if I wouldn't have done all that work before, how devastating that would have been. Yeah. Because these are all people that are like, like I was just, I was on tour at first following my partner who was um, a carpenter. And then at the time, then later on, um, I worked as a backstage manager. So I was with the artists all the time. 
And I remember thinking to myself again, I'm going to, I have access to gyms regularly. I have access to exercise equipment. I have access to everything. What kind of life do I want to live? Is that what I want to do? Do I want to be going to the gym? Do I want to be working out? And I said, no, I said to myself, I want two things. One, flexibility, because I believe that's about health. Healthy is, is being able to be flexible enough in life as well as in my body to be able to absorb certain things. And the other one was, I want to live a healthy lifestyle. So therefore, I move into apartments that don't have elevators at like fourth and fifth floor walk-ups. I started to modify my life to bring health into it in a natural way, to you know, park the car far away so that I had to walk to not having a car. It's been 12 years since I have a car and not necessarily taking public transport unless I had the time. I didn't have the time, but if not making time to walk to places, to go up and down the hill, even if it's uncomfortable, to now, especially I do a lot of walks in the park and I mean, walks in the woods and things like that. So I started a journey in my late 20s that began with looking at food as the trigger, but moved into how do I create a healthy lifestyle that allows me to maintain health? And how do I focus my body dysmorphia on the fact that it's not about that? Like what's most important is how I feel, how healthy I am and how my body moves, not necessarily what it looks like. Yeah. That made any sense. Absolutely. A hundred percent. That made sense. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, there's two things in there. One thing I always love to say, which is exactly what you just said is, our body image is not actually about our body. It's about how we see our body. It's about our mm -hmm. opinions on our body. It's not about like, that's why you can be a size two or a size 20 and you can feel amazing or you can feel like awful because right. it, because it's not about the size. Right. Right. Like, I think that's a big thing that a lot of people, I was listening to something the other day actually. And somebody was like, if you're uncomfortable in your body, just change it. Just go to the gym and lose weight. And I was like, you, that's not body image. Like she was specific. No. I, I know, I know, <laughs> I know. It was no. shocking. Like she was specifically saying, if you have, uh, it was a, it was like a women's sexuality podcast thing that I was listening to, and she was specifically saying, if you have body image issues in the bedroom, either make peace with your body or work on it and lose weight so that you can feel better. And I was just like, oh geez, I have so I many, so many issues with this. I would, I would like rip somebody's. I, and that's, there is, there is the problem, I think also from a per, like parental, like I remember the conversation I had with my mother when I start, I even remember exactly where I was the first time I ever told her I was on the phone with her. Um, we lived in, um, you know, I was in South Florida. I mean, I was in Seattle. She was in South Florida. So we were far away. We were on the phone. My mother and I are very, very close. And, um, and she, I, she made a comment and I made a comment to her and it was the first time I had ever revealed that my body issues stemmed from that behavior when I was little and some other little comments that she was making. Then again, my mother's comments were very much, she never made fun of me. She never, she made tiny little comments that were to say, Hey, by the way, just keep an eye out because right now you're in a trend where you're gaining weight. And so therefore I want you to just be aware of it so that you can look at what you're eating and, you know, based on the training you've had, you know, reduce a little bit because you're on a trajectory. That was, that was her intention. Her intention was to find, but when you're a, a 13 year old or a 12 year old and in that years, and there's a fantastic book um, many years ago that was put out called Reviving Ophelia that I read that was all about how girls go through this phase in, and some as young as like 
nine and 10 years old, where they start to look at their bodies and they start to see themselves objectified and all these other aspects. So she never, she never realized when I told her she had a meltdown, like a meltdown. She was so first, she was so hurt that I had been any kind of trauma because of it. And then she was angry with herself because she had no idea that what she was saying, which in her mind was the sweetest way she could say it, had that effect at a long term. I had never shared any of that, especially because what she saw from the outside was a skinny person. And what she was seeing in my 30s and in my early 40s was a skinny person. So she could never imagine that I had been in therapy for that, that I had had to have a, a, a diagnosis, that I had had to like work at it. And, and that's part of the reason why it's so important today to talk about it, because you see it from the outside and you think people are perfect and you don't realize what they're struggling through. I've never really worn makeup. I started to play with my hair when I was, I mean, I, I, I had a really kind of natural hair look until I was in my late 20s and early 30s when I started to play with dyes and colored hair and stuff. But it was always cute. Again, it was never sexy. It was, I still don't like get dressed up and wear makeup and put on the high heels. Um, I have them. I have all of it. But I still struggle to use any of it unless I have this one girlfriend who's gorgeous, like, like, you know, the whole glamorous and loves the makeup and like, she'll dress me up because it feels like it's not out of my, I'm getting somebody else's to approve of it and to stay. And that is one of the leftover remnants that still exists because of that. Yeah. Yeah. So this sort of journey that you've been on in both sort of making peace with food, but also sort of learning to accept your body and sort of dealing with this body dysmorphia that I know is still, it's still with you. It's, it's a part of your life. Would you, would you call this like a self-love journey, a self-acceptance journey? Like what, what term feels most true to you? To me, it's self-acceptance that feels the most because on the one hand, at least the way it manifested in me, I've always quote unquote loved myself. Luckily. I mean, I had periods just like anybody else. It's had their periods where they kind of don't love themselves. I love my strength. I, I love my height. I've, I've always loved my hair and there's characteristics, you know, I have green eyes and certain things that I focused on and that I realized that it's me who dumbs them down, not because they're not naturally there. So there's kind of always been a little bit of a love, but there hasn't been a lot of acceptance. And there hasn't been a lot of acceptance. I, I'm going to add another piece to it that I think that people don't realize that is out there. Um, I had somebody who said to me something about like, you know, people who look at you and they're like, oh, you're so beautiful and whatever. And I'm like, can I say that there are some terms that seem to be fantastic, but they are absolutely crippling to certain types of people. I'm a relatively intelligent woman. And for some people, I'm considered gorgeous or beautiful or whatever term you want to use. And in life today, that oftentimes feels like the kiss of death because it feels like you, you are expected to be out of reach and therefore it's very lonely. It's very isolating in some ways. And I remember having a conversation with this gorgeous friend of mine who has a daughter who's also gorgeous. And I said, please don't call her gorgeous. Tell her about the things she does that she helps her, that she becomes gorgeous. She becomes beautiful that let her beauty, her intelligence, in reward the things that she has control over rather than throwing out words and terminology that she doesn't feel like she owns because her response, her daughter's response always is like, 
the only thing that makes me gorgeous is that I'm your daughter. Like it's because she kind of says it's genetic traits that you passed on to me, mom. Like I can't do anything. Instead, she's somebody who spends hours working on her eye makeup. So I'm like, talk to her about how beautiful her eyes look. Thanks to the makeup she does because she controls that yeah. or wow, that outfit you chose for yourself is really beautiful on you. What a great selection of clothing. What great style sense. What what great way of styling your hair. Because if you just talk to me about the fact that my hair is curly and my eyes are green, I can't control that. And therefore, it doesn't feel like a compliment to me. It feels like a compliment to some external force that I have nothing about. So for me, one part was accepting. And the other part is accepting when you see, like I love telling people when they make choices for themselves that really accentuate their beauty. I love seeing, and this, I think that there's some cultures that really do a great job about this. Um, like my, um, my culture around uh, body type and clothing and stuff like that is my mother, one thing she did do well was teach me how to dress, how to wear clothing that is flattering, um, that always takes into consideration how I feel the best in it. And how I can look, you know, how I look as, as good as I can look in it. And I think if we, that's, that was the accepting, accepting what's below it while still accentuating all the parts that are most beautiful about you, that, that you can put something energy into it. So for me, a lot of it was about accepting, accepting that I will never have a flat stomach. I just won't. I mean, I have to try so hard and it's not worth it. Like I, accepting that my arms are always going to have a little bit of flab and that I am always going to be tall and that I, my butt's going to be a little bit bigger and that my thighs are bigger than most people. Um, heck, right now I'm bigger than my own partner. <laughs> He's smaller than I am mm -hmm. because it's just his build. His build is different. So, um, so yeah, definitely acceptance and, um, acceptance and I don't again I use this word control a lot in in other languages it, it's slightly different than the ways in the U.S. but more like taking control from the positive like being responsible for myself and choosing the parts that I want to accentuate yeah 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 beautiful beautiful that makes perfect sense so on this sort of journey you said you know you said that you've done a lot of things it started with finding that one specific book that taught you sort of how to work with your unique body, which is huge. Um, yep. And you've done therapy and then your sort of spiritual practices really fed into it, mm -hmm. to this. Are there any other tools or practices that you used that were really impactful, like journaling or meditation or like in anything else that sort of has been a help to you? No, I would say that, yeah, I mean, from, from my perspective, um, what I would say was, the my kind of journaling or my thing was about again that acceptance so mm -hmm. like i said those those long my goal never became again i want to hit this number as a matter of fact actually i threw out my scale years ago and i do have one pair of pants that are my measurement pants of like when i get too big because then i can't fit into them <laughs> it's like uncomfortable <laughs> but other than that i threw out the scale um i would say that the the goals my goal was who do I want to be? And I think that that's kind of my spiritual tool, like you said, was um, what are the processes that I have to reach to get to that acceptance? Yeah. And so what kind of lifestyle do I want to live in order to have the body? And that was kind of the tools that I use in the process. I'm not a big journaler and meditation where I live is done with your hands. So that was the other part. My meditation is walking, a lot of walking meditation. Mm -hmm. And I would say mindset work from the perspective of what I shifted 
big time, and I didn't realize it until later, was I started to look at everything I do as a possible way of being strength of being strong and healthy. Uh, an example, um, when I was living in Amsterdam for a while, I would walk to the supermarket that I would take and I would carry these two bags. And on the way back, I'm very conscious now of like balancing the weight, making sure that I always kind of carry things in twos. And then sometimes I'll like do curls with them as I'm walking down the street or I'll purposely take the street that goes up the hill rather than, or um, walks the stairs or sometimes I'll add stairs. Like multiple times I've lived in places where I've had to take lots and lots of stairs to get to my house. Right now, I, I'm in a kind of hillside, so I have to walk up the hills. So what I did was a lot of mindset work to shift and reframe daily life into opportunities to be strong. So I tend to be somebody who doesn't let anybody carry my suitcase when I travel, or I don't let anybody carry my bag, but I also have good bags, like backpack, um, very stylish, but backpack nonetheless. <laughs> or things of that nature. I don't, and then on, on the other hand, I also don't over carry things that I don't need. So like, I don't keep a heavy purse or anything like that because that's bad on the joints, that's bad on your elbows and on your shoulders. I've seen the problems my mother has with her shoulders and her elbows based on carrying a bag for years. So it's really kind of strange, but it's all about, again, accepting your limitations while also recognizing that any opportunity rather than looking at stairs and going, crap, I got to call all those stairs with my bag. It's like, oh yeah, that's a great way of like burning off some calories and of like, you know, getting stronger and my, my legs are going to get better. And so really shifting that work of, yeah. of how I look at day-to-day -day life. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Looking at sweat as sexy. Like sweat as good. Like yeah, who cares if I'm all sweaty? Rather than uh, I see people that struggle with that, they get dressed in ways that it's like, oh, well, then I, I can't take that those stairs because I'm going to get sweaty. And it's like, no, no, no. <laughs> I want to get sweaty. That means my body is moving and it's healthy and it's, you know, it's strong. Yeah. Because strong was probably the, the adjective that better describes my body type rather than trying to go to svelte or skinny or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. Perfect. So this sort of journey that you have been on your entire life and that you continue to be on, how has this journey affected your path to entrepreneurship? Hmm. Wow. Um, a lot in a way. It's like, it's funny. I, I, I didn't real. again, it's all these realizations you have as you're going forward and as you mm -hmm. see things. So when I um, changed in my late 20s was around the time that I changed my relationship that I was in and it kind of moved into a new phase of kind of relationships as well as my work. Like I, I left the job that I originally had and I, fi I finally searched for a job that I actually really, really wanted in a different way. Um, and then eventually moved on to uh, being an entrepreneur. I left the corporate world and moved that forward. I would say that if it wasn't, again, those characteristics that I have used for my own body journey have become the characteristics that I use for my work journey. Mm. Um, characteristics of looking at myself as accepting myself. So accepting who I am and what do I really love to do and what am I really good at? And from both the positive and quote unquote, the negative, like what are my strengths and what are my the parts that I'm like, hey, you know, I'm not going to put that much energy into that. So I'm not going to use it. Yeah. Um, recognizing my strengths. So really, how do I keep healthy and strong in those ways? So this journey of understanding my body, when am I hiding and when am I showing? 
when am I putting up a front and like imposter syndrome that, that there's a mirror between that imposter syndrome that you have in, Oh, I'm not going to get all dressed up and sexy because what am I disappoint is the same imposter syndrome that you experience with, Oh my God, I have all these titles and I have all these things, but I actually don't know what the hell I'm doing. Yeah. Um, so it was, it, they happened simultaneously and the cool, the cool thing, the great thing is when you look at being able to use one to help you with the other. So you start to recognize that, okay, wait, if I shifted that by doing a mindset of thinking, I'm going to do strong things, I'm going to, I'm going to approach life in this way. What if I do that in my entrepreneurial work? What if I approach it by every opportunity is an opportunity for strength and growth. Therefore I'm not an imposter because I am using this as an opportunity to grow. So it doesn't matter if it's okay, if I don't know how to do it at the time that I get into it, it's more importantly that I learn how to do it, you know? And so it allowed bringing that to a conscious surface, really using those journeys together has allowed me to probably move forward in a way that is parallel to what are the growth of my body, as well as the growth of my mind and my work and all these other aspects. Yeah. I love that. I love that because we like, we are, whole people as much as in some ways you can sort of say you know i have my body and i have my business and i have my relationship it's like yeah but it's all part of you and everything affects everything else yeah including the good stuff yeah absolutely and this is i think where a more holistic spiritual practice from my perspective has been my piece it was my glue it's Mm -hmm. like discovering that piece or starting to reawaken that piece and that journey was what allowed me to step back and, and say exactly what you just said. It's, it's what's the holistic view of my life because there, it's impossible for you to be happy with your body and be miserable at work. You can think you're doing it, but you're really not like, because it's going to tap into it. It's going to tap into the way that you eat. It's going to tap into the actions you take. It's going to tap into your relationships with friends. And so therefore we have to look at ourselves at 360 degrees and oftentimes it, you have this, if something's manifesting itself in your work environment, it's going to manifest itself in the way that you deal with your health, or it's going to manifest in the way that you deal with your relationships anyway, because there's, like you said, it's all still me. So yeah. My trait. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. I love people who are like, oh, it doesn't, it's not connected. We'll just talk about this one thing. I'm like, oh, you don't get it. <laughs> no. That's not how I You could talk world. about it, but it's just going to pop up again, <laughs> over and over again. Right. It's going to come right back. <laughs> so well, I find it to be more fun because it's more, it's more reassuring. Like, you know, that when you deal with something and when you evolve it into a new level, you've evolved it everywhere. Like that's the rewarding part about it. Right. Right. And how empowering too. Like that's a really impact, like, like that's something you can choose. You can decide to do that and it's going to affect everything across the board. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So if there's somebody who's, you know, listening and they're sort of maybe where you were like in your early twenties, maybe they're really struggling with their bodies. Maybe that sort of that shame and that inner critic, that judgment is still really with them. And, you know, if if there was one like exercise or practice or one thing that you would like to say to them or recommend to them, what do you think that would be? Talk about it. But to me, it's talk about it. Do these are journeys that for too long, people, especially women, but even men have taken on their own and thought that you can deal with it. The holistic approach that we were just talking about also means that we're never in a vacuum. So every, 
whenever I think I'm going through something by myself, if I talk about it, I recognize that there's others that are experiencing it too, or have experienced it or have something because what, especially, like I said, I live in community now. And what I recognized when I was in my late twenties, what ended up becoming one of the, the kind of big changes that has, that has remained in everything is that what changed big time was I became, went from an isolated person who, yes, I had a partner. Yes, I had work. Yes, I had everything. But to a certain extent, I had no real friends and no people that were confident, people that I could really share these stories with. Um, it was all inside of me. And therefore, I felt alone. When I started to talk about it and come out, I recognized that I had support. Because even, even when we were talking about still food, if you don't tell people, not I'm doing a diet, do this for me. But if you don't talk about kind of like the way and let those reflections help you, like I need support here because I need to eat in this certain way because of this. And people could bring you external factors that you might not think about. And therefore you say, oh, well, okay, that makes sense and, and such. But having those mirrors around you allows you to see the reality of what we're all living. And we work, we, we grow better, we evolve quicker. And this has even been stud studied scientifically. We evolve better when we do it as reflections and in community, when we do it with others. Yeah. And so tell your story and don't be afraid of getting like help whether that be reaching out to a friend, whether that be like I did that, yeah, I had this book, but I realized it was more about my, than my physical weight. And so therefore I went first to therapy, then I was in my spiritual practice and I shared this journey over and over again. And the more I shared this journey, the more people could reflect into it and the more we could help each other and support each other and grow with each other. So whether it be a coach at the beginning, because maybe you don't feel like you can bring your, or, you know, your friends into it or your partner or whatever. And so that, that's one big aspect. And the other aspect is it's the judgment doesn't help. So therefore we're all going to judge. We're going to be there. It's just a natural part that sometimes happens, but judge the actions you can control, not the things that you can't control. Like you, you, you can't control certain types of things. And so it's not worth it to put your energy there, reframe your mindset to start thinking about like I did, I didn't talk about it a little bit, but another piece of my mindset shift was shifting myself out of foods that are not good for my body. Mm. They're just not good for them. And so therefore I convinced myself, I don't like them. I just don't, I, I don't like, I don't like carrots anymore in certain ways because I would overdo carrots. Mm -hmm. I don't like certain quality of certain types of foods. Um, you can't do it with everything necessarily. Like I couldn't do it with everything. I still love ice cream way too much, but I could, trust myself into certain types of foods i was like i don't i don't really like that and therefore i don't need it anymore mm -hmm. um so it's just like reframing and asking people to help you in that reframing journey yeah yeah oh man i love I, I have so <laughs> many questions about you especially like you living in community but i feel like that's like a whole other a whole other conversation <laughs> which we could easily have another day yeah we'll, yeah, do, part, we'll do part two <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I have so many questions. I have to, like, I'm super interested yeah. in that, but um, yeah, we'll just, we'll stick with this for today. Cause that's some really yeah. great advice. Like talk to people. There's so much power in sharing in community because I think to shame and guilt really, really thrive in isolation. Uh, 
Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We believe really incredible things about people like this is, I'm very vocal about a lot of topics because of that. And I, when I started to work with the plant world, it was, you know, that was another mirror set of mirrors of looking at the natural world and also seeing how some of these things manifest in the natural world, which is way different than the way we have set up our society. And so it was like, okay, I have these mirrors of humans. Now I have this mirrors of the natural world. And now we can have conversations back and forth. Like I can talk to the plants and I can talk to the people and we can start to look at how it is. And you start to recognize that what we see from the outside is so distorted. It's so distorted through our own filters. And when we have a conversation, we can get deeper into it and we can see what the, what our joint reality looks like. And therefore, when we have a joint reality, we can modify the joint reality because that's yeah. the other part. If I wouldn't have told people what I was experiencing and they were going to be bringing food that was bad for my body, that maybe seemed healthy, but it's bad for my body, they would have put it in front of me. When I share, then all of a sudden, they don't put that in front of me right. and they don't be like, because we have cultural things. Like I said, oh, I don't want that. Oh no, you have to try it. No, no, actually really, I don't because it actually harms me. Oh, wow, I'm sorry, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, it actually does. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Like, no, 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 you don't have to worry about it. You know, those types of things. Yeah. So, so I think, like you said, it's super important for us to bring community into it and to just get rid of that shame. Yeah, 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 for sure. Okay, beautiful. So if listeners want to get in touch with you, if they want to find out more about you or the work that you do or any of that good stuff, where is the best place for them to get in contact with you? The best place would be um, my website. So my website is just my full name. So tigrilagardenia.com. There you get like the basics. And then I'm all over Facebook. <laughs> I'm all over Facebook. Like I have my Facebook page is very active and I have a few groups and things. And so they can just reach out to me there. So my Facebook page, or um, my email and everything is in my name. Luckily having an unusual name makes it easy. So whether I'm on LinkedIn or Instagram or Facebook or my website, it's always just Tigrila Gardenia. <laughs> super simple. <laughs> That's super simple. Okay. It is. It's the benefit of having a good name. <laughs> yeah, you're lucky. I think I'm also like an author and a politician and a gymnast. I have a very common exactly. name. Yes, it's, it's quite complicated. <laughs> yeah, that was, the, that was the best part of it. I'm like, I've noticed that there's people with the same like first name, but the second name, no. So it's like that combination of the two. Just like, yes, I can put all of it everywhere. <laughs> so, so my login is always like the same. I always tigri la gardenia. Yeah, nice and simple. All right, I'll make sure to put all the links to that in the show notes as well. Of course. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for being here. This has been a joy talking to you and we need to do part two because I have so many more questions. <laughs> Yay! Yay for part two. I'm excited about it. Thank you so much for being here. I hope that you enjoyed listening to that interview as much as I enjoyed doing the interview. If you would like to get in touch with Tigria, if you would like to find out more about her work, as she said, because her name is so beautiful and unique, it's really easy to find her. I will make sure to pop the links to her social media as well as her website in the comments below. 
Also, please remember if you would like to join our free self-love Facebook group, you are more than welcome to do that. The link to do that is in the show notes as well. Thank you for being here. Here is to you loving yourself.